0: We are continuing our series back in 1st Timothy. Um, Last week we brought a Mother's Day message and uh, took a break, but coming back to 1st Timothy chapter 2, so if you'll turn your Bibles there. I've entitled the message today, The Prayer Life of a Church. And while I think about this, I thought about pickpockets. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with the prayer life of a church? Well, bear with me a moment. Pickpockets, who do they target, what do they look for, how do they get it? Um, Pickpockets are not the type of people that you might think. They say, first of all, many people think pickpockets are just sketchy individuals, and so therefore you're looking for a sketchy individual. However, they say many pickpockets are young girls and young boys, ages 10 to 16, because you are unsuspecting that a child will steal from you. Secondly, some people are very well-dressed pickpockets, so you don't recognize them and you're not as much on the defense when you're around well-dressed people. And where do they steal at? Well, busy places, train stations, subways, buses, museums, tourist places, All those kind of places because there's lots of people, lots of distractions, things going on, and you're very unsuspecting. Your mind is busy taking pictures and taking in the scenes, and so they use a lot of ways. But there's one particular thing that all pickpockets do. They use distraction. Every one of them. Use distraction. They want to distract your attention away just long enough to steal that valuable, whether it's a passport, money, cell phone, whatever it is. Some of them, they say, will even uh, go onto a subway at the last second if, if somebody's texting or talking on their phone, and they will just grab the phone, run out the door, and the doors is closed, and you can't get them. So they have many, many means of doing that. Now, the reason I bring up pickpockets is because Satan... Is a thief, the Bible says, right? He's a thief. Now think about this Satan wants to pickpocket the church. What is he looking for in the church? Valuables. Valuables. What is valuable to the church? The prayer life of a church is one of the most valuable assets of a church especially the prayer life that we're going to talk about this morning because we're not talking about just prayer in general. We're actually talking about the prayer life at church in respect to praying for the lost. And I think this, the longer a person has been in the church and saved and walking with God, the greater potential for being pickpocketed. So if you've been a Christian for a long time, the chances are, you are being attacked by the pickpocket Satan to rob you and steal from you the value of praying for the lost. And that's what this passage is really all about. When Paul gives instructions on worship and prayer, he is talking specifically about praying for the lost. Let's read through the first few verses together. I urge then, first of all, that requests... Prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. So here we see the prayer life of a church. This is a church in Ephesus, And Paul is writing to Timothy to say, hey, here's how you need to instruct the people of the church of Ephesus to pray. And so here's what is challenged for us today. Prayer encourages evangelism. It really does. When we think about the importance of the church and the mission of the church, we could probably boil it down to four things. Worship, evangelism, fellowship, and edification. Edification would be a part of discipleship. Worship, evangelism, fellowship, edification. So, we are talking about one of the four keys of the church. And that's why I believe Satan tries to pickpocket believers and the corporate church as a whole to rob from us this whole aspect of praying for the lost. So, we're going to look at four kinds of prayers that are listed here. Four kinds that we are to offer up to God. The first three are synonymous, but offer a slightly different approach that really enriches the whole aspect of prayer. So the four are listed here. Requests, he has them right here. Prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. And we're going to take a look at each one of these aspects and kind of break it down, unpack it just a little bit. It's right here in our text. First of all. When he talks about first of all, there's two different possibilities here. He could be talking about first in sequence or first in importance. But I think, really, he's talking about both. It should be first in sequence and it should be first in importance in our lives. And so here's the first one he talks about is requests. Requests here, the root meaning of this word means to lack or to be deprived or to be without something this kind of prayer is motivated watch this by a sense of need not my need so much the need of the lost person to come to Christ that's the need that Paul is saying I am so burdened for the need of a lost person who is bound in sin who is blind by sin who is burdened by sin that they have a need to know God, but they don't know it. But I see it. I see their lostness. And I'm motivated by a sense of need of how much they need him. I want to read slowly through this quote that I put down by Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter was a 17th century Puritan pastor. And I want you to see what he says. Oh, if you have the hearts of Christians... Or of men in you, let them yearn towards your poor, ignorant, ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step betwixt them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting ready to seize on them. And if they die unregenerate, they are lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? If you believe not the word of God and the danger of sinners, why are you Christians yourselves? If you do believe it, why do you not bestir yourself to the helping of others? Do you not care who is damned so you be saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves, for it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. Dost thou live close by them, or meet them in the streets, or labor with them, or travel with them, or sit and talk with them, and say nothing to them of their souls, or of the life to come? If their houses were on fire, thou wouldst run and help them, and wilt thou not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? That's a whole sermon in itself, is it not? He's telling us, can we not have a burden and a passion to pray for the lost? But Satan wants to pickpocket that burden to get us off on all these other things. There are undoubtedly thousands of people in Huron and surrounding community who are lost. I have no doubt, who are absolutely lost today. I can't help but think, the more frequently I drive by the Red Arrow Bar in Hearst Corner, how many people are sitting there waiting for someone to witness the life-changing message of the God. They don't know they're waiting, they don't know that need, but to think that we have that opportunity to share the gospel with them. There are a number of people in our community whose lives are wrapped up with their work, their play, their money, their stuff, their pleasure, their health, their house, their vehicles, their sports, their entertainment. And what is that? Satan is pickpocketing the gospel from them so they can't hear it. So we all have contacts with people who need Jesus. So the question is, who in your circle of influence Are you burdened for to come to a saving knowledge of Christ? Who are you burdened for? Well, that's the first one, requests, that we have this sense of need of someone coming to Christ. Secondly is prayers. Prayers here is worship and reverence. You say, how does that work in evangelism? Because people who are lost don't worship and reverence the Lord. That's right. Here's the key. When people do come to a saving knowledge of Christ, what do they begin to do? Worship and reverence the Lord. So the pool, the base of worship is expanded as people come to Christ. Giving glory to God in our prayers, proclaiming his majesty, his power, his holiness, his worthiness to be worshipped. Prayer that exalts God for who he is. The more people who come to faith in Christ, the greater the worship base. Look at this verse. This verse really sums it up. Quite well. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. More people come to worship. Thirdly, we have intercession. This word means to fall in with someone. Now what does that mean? It means that we are connecting in prayer to God for their hardships, their struggles, their difficulties, their sinful lifestyle. We develop a heavy heart and a burden. We feel the pain of their sin, of what it's doing to their life, their family. It is prayer that is couched in compassion and saturated with empathy for their lostness, that you plead with God to open their eyes to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. That's what Paul prayed for in Acts 26.18. Do you think Satan is pickpocketing the church of intercession? I think so. The fourth one is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. This is someone who has a spirit of gratitude, but look, especially for the saving gospel of Christ. Because this is all in relationship to evangelism, prayer that spurs on evangelism in our lives. That I am thankful that the gospel has saved me and it has the power to save others. It has the power to break the chains of sin and to break the, the, the bondage that people are in so they can come to faith in Christ and know him personally. But listen to this carefully. When we lose the spirit of gratitude for our salvation, we will most likely lose a heart for evangelism. If we are become unthankful for our salvation and we lose the joy of our salvation, why would I want to tell somebody else? I lose that spirit of gratitude. I lose the heart for evangelism. I become cold and calloused in my heart and the evangelistic fervor has been doused. Are we concerned about people who are in bondage to sin Do we want to see God's grace extend to more and more lost people to bring them to Christ and see God glorified? Good questions. Convicting questions. Prayer, Paul goes on to tell Timothy, for salvation of all types of lost people. Notice what he says. I urge that there would be requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving to be made for everyone. And then he gives some specifics for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So all types of lost people. Why? Because the gospel is universal. It is available to everyone. The false teachers thought it was only available to a few people. But it's available to everyone. Notice he goes on to say down in verse 4 who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God is not willing that any should perish but that all would come to repentance and salvation. Here he says in Ezekiel 33.11 I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. He also says in Acts 17:30 the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God's desire is that everyone would come to a saving knowledge of Christ but he doesn't decree that everyone will come to Christ. And we don't have time to delineate those two things but there's a difference between God's desire and God's decree. God never desired sin to be in the world either. But in the scope of God's sovereignty he has allowed sin And he works within the scope of this world. So he says, kings and all who are in high positions, people in authority who have great influence. And this is praying for those who may not be kind or sympathetic to Christianity. It may even be including praying for people who are absolutely hostile to Christians. Paul is challenging believers in Ephesus to pray, who was in authority in Paul's day? Nero. Nero was the youngest emperor at age 16, and he was one of the most wicked, godly, godless emperors that ever reigned. And his reign only lasted 14 years, and he committed suicide at the age of 30. But he took the throne two decades after Christ was crucified, and almost from the infancy, Christianity was spreading rapidly at that time. In fact, 14 of Paul's letters of the 27 books were written in whole or in part during Nero's emperorship. But Nero's legacy was not a pleasant one. Listen to what he did. Although his regime began with mildness and idealism, it ended with cruelty and tyranny. He began murdering anyone who became an obstacle to him. Almost reminds me of Kim Jong-un. His victims include his own wife and mother, as well as his stepbrother, Britannicus, Emperor Claudius' biological son. In July of 64, the great fire of Rome broke out and lasted for 16 days. Of Rome's 14 districts, only three escaped damage from the fire. Some historians believe that Nero himself was responsible for the fire, but he blamed the Christians. And so what did he do? He had Christians covered with skins of beasts and they were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses. They were doomed to the flames and burnt and served as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. He used Christians as human torches to light his evening garden parties. And Paul is saying to pray for kings and those in authority, to pray for Nero. Listen, but how did he say to pray? Not that he would be removed from office, but that he would come to a saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a very different prayer. That's a challenge to me, that Nero would come to faith in Christ. And so Paul is saying the purpose of much of our prayer should be for the advance of the gospel. It really should. You see, the key to moving a country forward toward Christ is a leadership that has been changed by the power of the gospel I think of America, even our own nation. We pray for our leaders, but it's for the advance of the gospel it should be. For the advance of the mission of the church. So prayer encourages evangelism. We pray for the salvation of all types of lost people. Evangelism encourages community. Change leaders result in a changed community a community that has changed committed to evangelism will be looking for ways to be peacemakers that's what we'll be looking for notice what he says in verse 2 for kings and all those in authority that we may what live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness because when you have godly rulership you can have a peaceful community and we are seeking to be peacemakers He tells Titus in chapter 3, "...remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another." And when he talks about peaceful here, he's talking about an absence of outside disturbances, where we actually have a peaceful community. And when you have evangelism working through a community, it spreads peace as people come to faith in Christ. The quietness, on the other hand, is the absence of internal disturbances. When we're at peace with God, we can be quiet on the inside. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you. You see, the government is not our enemy. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Even though people with skin on make those decisions, they are being driven by evil forces and evil powers, and that's why we pray for their conversion, or should pray for their conversion. And then he goes on to say, "'Peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness.'" godliness is pursuing the holiness of god what we sang about this morning holiness is what i need dignity a moral earnestness but not moral for the sake of morality alone moral earnestness for the sake of the gospel for the sake of christ for the sake of the lost person coming to christ i live a morally excellent life to promote christ that's the difference between someone who tries to do it for themselves and someone doing it for the Lord. This godly, dignified life will result in a peaceful and quiet life. It does not mean we will not face opposition or hostility, because it says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But it does mean this, we will not stir up trouble by a sinful lifestyle. Suffering persecution as a Christian would cause us to rejoice. Suffering as a sinner causes a person anguish. Well, let's look at the motivation for the lost. Our motivation in praying for the lost. I'm going to give you six motivations. In this passage, it talks about us praying for the lost. Number one, because it's good. Notice what he says in verse 3. This is good. When we do these things, these requests, these prayers, these intercessions, this thanksgiving, this is good. It's good because we're obeying God. We grasp the significance of the gospel and the depth of the lost person's condition apart from Christ. They have no hope apart from Christ. There's no means of escape. their lost condition they'll be eternally lost without Christ eternally lost so we pray for their salvation secondly because it pleases God notice this is good and pleases God our Savior our desires should be in line with God's desires and again even though God desires all men to be saved we have a free moral will And some people reject and rebel against the light, but God is still calling them to Himself. We don't know who's going to be saved. We don't know who God has chosen to be saved. So we pray and we witness and we share our lives. I'll never forget um, when God burdened my heart to start a good news club at our, our church. I was still single. And it was before I even went away to college. I I was doing my college through the mail. And God burdened my heart to start a good news club for kids, which I wouldn't say I'm a kid magnet or anything, but I just, I was burdened to do it. And I started going around to all the neighborhood and knocking on doors, and I was looking for swing sets, and I was looking for swing uh, play sets because I knew they had kids. And I would go, and I would invite them. I'd say, hey, I want to invite your kids to a good news club Tuesday afternoon at our church and over a 12-week period, we had 40 different kids come. Some of them accepted Christ as their Savior. But here was the thing. You never know what's going to happen in someone's life. And one of the single moms that brought her three kids, I finished up the Good News Club. That fall, I went to college. I came back home during break. She made a beeline to the church. She was looking for me. I said, what happened? What happened? She said, my brother, you met him. I said, yes, 36 years old, had a massive heart attack and dropped dead instantly. And he was in eternity. And you know what her question was? Where is he? Where is he? And I said, you know what? I can't answer that right now. I said, but let me, let me go home and get my Bible and I took my mom with me and I sat down with that single mom and I sat down with the, the wife who lost her husband. And I had to carefully, gently, I said, all I can share with you is what the scripture says. That we have a destiny, one of two places. The Bible has made provision for us for eternity through Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. And I had the opportunity to share the gospel right in her dining room table. Did they come to Christ? No. But that single mom has been in my dad's church for the past 25 plus years. And I I think she probably does have a relationship with the Lord. I don't know about the other lady. But here's the point we have the message, and we've got to give it to people. And we never know. Maybe they're going to reject it. Maybe they're going to make fun of it. But at some point in their life, there's going to be a crisis hit. And when you do, you've built the bridge. You've shown concern for them that they might come to Christ. Thirdly, because God desires to save the lost. This should be a great motivation for us. We know it's God's heartbeat So we should have the same heartbeat as God desiring to save the lost. Even though He knows many will reject Him. Notice it says in verse 4 again, who wants all men to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. The person who is a hopeless case The repulsive, the rebellious, the irreligious, God wants to save. Who is the most irreligious, ungodly, wicked person you know? Who is it? Are you praying for their salvation? Look at the Apostle Paul, the worst of sinners. Somebody must have been praying for Paul. Maybe there's somebody in your family that you think there is absolutely, they're beyond hope. They are not beyond the grace of God. They are not beyond the hope of the gospel. Satan pickpockets our minds to believe that they are beyond the reach of the gospel. And they are not. As I think about the Celebrate Recovery ministry that we want to get started, there are many people who are in bondage that God wants to set free. God wants to use Bethesda Church in this community to reach them. I believe that. It's going to take the praying church, to bring them into the kingdom. Fourthly, because God is the only one who can save the lost. There is no one else. Therefore, our motivation should be that God is the only one. You know, in India, they worship over 300 million gods. Over 300 million. It's hard to imagine, but that's how many they worship. But the Bible tells us, look down in verse 5, there is one God who's worthy of our worship, who can save their soul. One God. God is the only one who can save the lost. Whether they're Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, pagan, God is the only one who can save them. And that's why we need to share it. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let me go on to number five. Because Christ can reconcile the lost to God. Notice there is one God, in verse five, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Jesus Christ is the reconciler. He is the mediator between God and man, sinful man and holy God. Jesus Christ is the mediator. He is the one who is in between. He is the one who reconciles, who removes the hostility of man and gives him humility to embrace the gospel Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for the lost. Notice it says, who gave himself, in verse 6, as a ransom. A ransom is a person who paid a price that we couldn't pay. He is the one who provided atonement for our sins, Christ's substitutionary death for us. He took our place. He paid our penalty. He took my pain. He took my suffering. He took my crown. He took my nails. He took my thorns. He took my spear. He became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. a ransom for all. Christ's substitutionary death for us. 19th century theologian William G.T. Shedd wrote, the atonement is sufficient in value to expiate. Expiate means to atone the sin of all men indiscriminately. And this fact should be stated because it is a fact. There are no claims of justice not yet satisfied. There is no sin of man for which an infinite atonement has not been provided. Therefore, the call to come is universal. He can save anyone. And the last one is because it recognizes our responsibility to the lost. He says in verse 7, and for this purpose, I was appointed a herald And an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. He says, for this, for what? For the gospel. For the truth, that God is our Savior, that Christ is our mediator, that Christ died a substitutionary death in my place. That is what God called me to do. It's what he's called you and I to do as well. He says, I'm a preacher, I am to herald, I am to proclaim, I am to speak publicly this message of the gospel, but I cannot do it unless I pray. You know, in the ancient world, they didn't have the news media, and they had to make announcements out in the city square. Paul was one who cried in the city square to repent and come to Christ. He was an apostle. He was a messenger, a sent one, an ambassador. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Your heads bowed and your eyes closed. How are you doing with your commitment to pray for the lost? We've been instructed to do so and maybe you need to pray like I prayed this week. God, rekindle my prayer life for the lost. Rekindle it. Renew it. Stir it back up again. Because the longer we've been saved, see, my contention is this, new churches that are planted newly planted churches evangelize because they don't have anybody (laughs) churches that are established have people and we become comfortable well there's people here what do I need to witness for what do I need to reach out to others for why do I need to pray for their salvation because God has told us to do that and there are some people out there who may not be thankful now but oh would they be thankful when they gave their life to Christ that you stepped out of your comfort zone to share the gospel with them. But you will not do that and I will not do that unless I am driven by a burden to even pray for the lost. If I am not praying for the lost, I'm not going to witness to the lost. And so the prayer life of a church should be evangelism. That is one area we need to Strive to have rekindled in our lives. Maybe you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I don't know what God you're trusting in, but there's only one that can deliver you from your sin. You can't deliver yourself, it's impossible. But God wants to deliver you, He wants to give you new life, a new heart a new desire. And he can do that if you will give your life to the Lord. If you will surrender to him to say, God, I'm a sinner. I deserve eternal wrath and judgment, but I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross that we sang about this morning. And I'm going to cling to the cross. The shed blood of Jesus for my sin. If you don't know for sure how to do that or you would like someone to pray with you, we'd be glad to pray with you after the service. Please see myself or someone else. Or if you have another special need, we'd be glad to pray with you about that need. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is Bethesda. MB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy.org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.